welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, skeptic, curmudgeon, farmer, professional real estate investor for the last 10 years. And for those of you who never been to an RDI meeting or maybe turning the podcast for the first time, um, Renegade Detroit Investors is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations in the lovely city of Detroit. Uh, we also have this podcast online for the entire internets in the world. The emphasis of the local meetings is on networking and deal flow. Um, this isn't your, your grandmother's Rhea. Um, no sales from the front ever. No smell, stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. The other part of RDI is this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting people getting shit done in the city of Detroit and eventually the world. And I pick their brain for your amusement and hopefully education as well. Um, if you're interested in meeting up or going to a local meeting or you want to follow us all over the internet, go to renegadedetroit.com. The website has not been updated. It's in the process of being updated. So when you're listening to this, it might still suck. Check back. Or you can go to meetup.com forward slash Detroit. Uh, Renegade Detroit Investors, sorry, meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors and or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Or you can just do a, a search on the YouTube for Detroit Wholesalers and uh, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. Don't send me any pointless shit though, people. I got stuff to do, okay? Uh, without further ado, today... Enter the castle. I'm in the castle. Entercastle.com with two of the three uh, founders of Castle, Max and Tim. Uh, I got a little ahead of myself here before we get going. Show quote of the day. Let him who would first move the world move himself. Socrates. I'm just kidding, Socrates. And I dated myself. Uh, do you guys, Socrates, you remember? You know, Monty Python? No. no, but yeah, that maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Yeah, there we go. There yeah. we go. There we go. So I'm dating myself. But anyway, here I am today. Enter the castle, castle with Max and Tim. Max, born and raised in Newton, Massachusetts. For enough to how do you say that? Wesleyan University. Yep. That sounds like a hotbed intellectual. Uh, uh, what was that like? What, what, what kind of college is that? Uh, Wesleyan's like a small liberal arts college on the East Coast. It's a uh, pretty, sort of a mix of hippie and hipster. It was named Gawker's Most Obnoxious Liberal Arts College of 2011, I think, so that kind of gives Got you a it. sense. Skinny jeans mandatory. <laughs> yep, yep, okay. pretty much. All right. A double majored in English and stealing. I mean, government. <laughs> um, how do you major in government? I just learn about government stuff. It's funny, government's really the jock major. It's like the major all the jocks do because it's an e a really easy major. Yeah. Um, I was just always interested in political science, and since it was easy, I could do it kind of as a second major, kind of on top of my main gig. I could teach that so. class. Look, you made it. Don't make so much. We're going to steal it and put it over here. There you go. Pretty much done. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, apparently you did that and uh, decided to do some Venture for America Plus two years of Are You a Human, which is some sort of design school. What is that about? Uh, no, so they're a, a startup in uh, downtown Detroit that does like interactive ads, basically. Um, and they were that was a company I worked at first two years when I oh, moved so to Detroit. Was a job. Yep, okay. yep. So Are You Human was a job. Uh, I did a lot of design stuff for them. 
And so it was kind of an informal design school in the sense that I was fresh out of college, didn't really ever study design, was kind of thrown into this job, uh, and, you know, kind of learned a lot uh, just just by getting your hands dirty. That's, yeah, that's how most of us learn. Tim mm-hmm. is from Boston, went to Brown, oh, has a master's in electrical engineering. That'll come in handy with property management. Uh, and loves ultimate frisbee. Oh. So, how do you go from electrical engineering to startup, property management, Detroit? Well, I also went through Venture for America. Um, that's how I got out here. Um, had my job for two years at the same time as Max and Scott. That's how we met. Um, but my Venture for America job was uh, at a wind power company in Ann Arbor called Accio Energy. And I actually was doing engineering there, specifically ah. um, computer modeling of our um, prototype that they're still working on, trying to bring to commercial scale. Interesting. So you guys actually both met at Venture for America. So, so what is Venture for America? I mean, I, I Googled it, I read a little bit, but mm-hmm. what is that? Yeah, so VFA is kind of like Teach for America, but for startups. So the, it's a really new program. It was Ours was the first year of it ever. Um, and basically the idea is take recent college grads and send them to emerging cities around the U.S., uh, places like Detroit, of course, other cities like uh, New Orleans, San Antonio, um, to basically work for uh, developing, developing companies in those developing cities. Uh, basically, the idea is spend a couple of years in the trenches as uh, learning from a more experienced entrepreneur to kind of prepare you to start your own business. Okay. So that we all met uh, in that in that program uh, at their summer training camp, and then we all headed to Detroit and uh, kind of went from there. So, like an internship, or do they pay you, or what? what so it's mostly it's not an internship. You're a full time employee of the company that you actually are like work for. So you're not paid for by, you're not paid by VFA or anything like that. It's more of a kind of network and placement program, right? So, like, look, if you're uh, someone who's, you know, coming out of school on the East Coast, like we were, number one, how are you going to end up in a city like Detroit without kind of some kind of path to get you there? But also, and let's say you want to work for a startup, it's really hard for you to find one because startups can't recruit on campuses. They don't have those resources. Um, And similarly, for the startups, it's really hard for them to find uh, people to come work for them out of college because there's a million companies. They don't have the resources to get their name out there. Um, so VFA kind of connects those two groups um, and sort of part of the idea is that, you know, there's a few cities around the U.S. that attract most of sort of the best and brightest, not to put us in, in that group or anything. But, you know, places like New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., kind of one of the driving ideas behind VFA is that if we could get more recent graduates going to places like Detroit, like these other cities, that it would kind of be good for the country overall. Ah, okay. So basically... They want to export some new level of entrepreneurship to cities across America that they, you know, you say emerging, but I might say down and out. Yeah, well, they used like they that. used to say struggling. Millennial say, language. Yeah. So they used to say struggling cities, but then yeah. the cities, some of them took umbrage at being described so as struggling. struggling. Yeah, so now they say emerging, developing, developing. Yeah. yeah, I'm just refinancing my debt. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Yeah. So. so, so the city is with you. That's an interesting program, and that's Venture for America, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you guys go to Venture America, do two years. Is that like sign up for the military? Like you have to do a certain number of years, or do you got enlist, or how does that work? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a two-year commitment that you make when doing the program, but we all kind of say that VFA is for life. Um, I mean, the most important part of VFA, and I think Tim would agree with this too, has been the network that we've built uh, among the other fellows. I mean, it's not just 
me and Tim and Scott, you know, starting this company together, but, uh, you know, other VFA fellows who live in this house that we bought and restored, um, just a broader network of fellows in other cities who are kind of always there, uh, supporting us, bouncing ideas off from just this incredibly strong community. So, uh, it may be kind of like the army in the sense that you form really tight bonds with people and then stay in touch with them forever. But, uh, it's not, certainly wouldn't say it's, uh, Don't comparable to, to a tour. Actually, our, our, uh, friend and, uh, roommate and co-owner of this house, Sean, actually was in the Marines and then did VFA. So I think he'd probably say the Marines was a lot harder. Yeah, Marines. Uh, that, I was smart enough not to do that. So, <laughs> all right. Did you know you wanted to go to Detroit when you joined Venture for America or did you just say, Hey, I'm looking for adventure. I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm interested in organization. I don't feel like, and I'm, what was your decision process like to, I'm just, I'm just curious what ends up, what takes someone from Newton and Boston, mm. scrambles them, sends them to another city through the organization, and then somehow end up buying, we'll get into this too, buying a, a semi-mansion in Detroit at the Wayne County Tax Auction, rehabbing it, and starting your own property management company. I mean, how's that happen? Uh, so for me, I was always interested in, um, like urban revitalization. That was probably the number one draw for me to venture for America that, and, um, they advertised specifically that they had some, um, renewable energy companies sort of in their mix. So the two of those factors together was like instantly drew me to the program. As soon as I heard about the launch party in summer of 2011, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Applied as soon as applications opened, um, got in. And then when I was looking around at jobs, my number one criterion was that I would be doing engineering at a renewable energy company. And it happened to be that the best match for me was out here in Detroit. So I didn't know much about the city. In fact, I had never even been to Detroit until I had all my stuff in my car and was moving out here, got to... Um, I don't need to look at it. Yeah, it's like, it'll be fine, I'm sure. It's, it'll be great. Got to downtown Detroit at like 1 a.m. on the day I moved in with all my stuff in the car. Thankfully, there was a 24-hour like doorman at the apartment building. I was going to say, you ever see Joe's apartment? No. Oh, God, it's the worst cockroach movie in the world, Joe's apartment. Oh, God. He moves to New York, gets robbed three times in the first five minutes. No, so that didn't happen. No, it was no. not Good. like that at all. <laughs> Good. Yeah, but I mean, now that I'm here... I should have I should have looked into the city more because it's amazing and there's a reason that Detroit is like the unofficial flagship city of Venture for America and we get um, pretty much the most or second most number of fellows every year in every new class. Yeah, I kind of look at Detroit as New York in the 30s or or maybe even in the 80s, you know, down and out, but definitely definitely some bargains there. So here we are. You end up working for a marketing company, you end up working for an engineering startup, both mm-hmm. startups, both. Mm-hmm. And then somehow you two meet and go, fuck this, we want to do our own thing. <laughs> you know what I want to do? Sexy property management. Yeah, we, we only manage sexy properties, by the way. Only to, to all the professional customers out there. Because to, to me, this is like um, going home with an ugly girl all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Property management for me, don't get me wrong, it's essential. Yeah. Ugly girls fold your clothes. Oh, I'm going to get so much hate mail. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it's just the, it's not the place right. where all, all the sexiness right. happens. So, so why property management and, and 
Why Detroit? Why property management? Well, I think there's actually the answer to those, those two questions. Why Detroit? Why property management are actually kind of similar, like big picture, in that I think a lot of the best opportunities are often where other people aren't looking. Um, and I certainly felt that way about Detroit that, you know, especially it's gotten a little more popular in the past couple of years. And the people who were here before us probably say the same thing about when we got here. But in 2012, it was pre-bankruptcy. A lot of the stuff downtown in, in that area hadn't happened yet. Um, all my friends thought it was crazy to go to Detroit, but I kind of felt like if you want to, the greatest opportunities in life are felt found in the places that a lot of people just aren't looking for whatever preconceived reasons they have. And I think a lot of that's true with property management as well, is that part of the reason that excites me is it's kind of a huge unsolved problem. It's a problem for all investors. Everyone hates the current solutions. And the, a lot of like great people who are great at solving problems would never look at property management because just in their head, it's like, oh, that's a big pain. It's such a schlep. Like, I don't want to deal with it. So I see it as kind of a big challenge, no doubt, but also like a potentially a big untapped opportunity and problem to be solved. Hmm. I like that. And that kind of goes back to the, the show quote, let him who first moved the world move himself. So you're like, you know what? This sucks. It's obvious it sucks. Nobody likes it. Fuck it, we're gonna make a go at it. We're just gonna there's there's a need. I think there's money here. And but that's not all. You're kinda of like, hmm, I don't like the way they're doing it too. So I I see the potential for huge disruption in the same way that the internet has basically killed newspapers and TV and everything else like that. So okay. Can we talk about some of the things that you're doing to completely disrupt this industry, even though it's small now? But, uh... <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it comes to get back to what you were saying before. One of the things we looked at was we were like, all right, look, everyone we know complains about, who uses property management complains about property management. They say they hate it, or at best, they said their property managers were just okay. And yet, all these people are still using this thing that they are complaining about all the time. So what that said to me was, there's... This is something people really need. They, in fact, they need it so badly that they're going to put up with current solutions that they don't really like, and yet they're still using. And they're really unhappy with their current options. So that just, those two things combined, that was like, this is an sort of incredible untapped opportunity. Mm. And then when we looked at other property management companies, both in the Detroit market and kind of all, all around the country, you know, the real estate world overall often feels like it's just like operating like 20 years behind the rest of the American economy. I would say that's very um, Maybe 20 years is like being generous. More um, like 50 sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you look at some of the way that like our current real estate is uh, like markets and laws are still just evolved from like 16th century British like property law. Yeah. It's absurd. Uh, when I for, like when I first learned how how deeds actually work. Oh, like yeah, yo. Oh, yeah, yo. <laughs> Pretty much. They did it. Um, so, but we looked at how a lot of other property management companies were run, and every single one we just kind of looked at, and we were like, there's just gross inefficiencies here, so much, uh, so many things being done by people that could just be easily automated by technology, and it actually creates a worse experience for, it's not like, you know, I think there are some industries where people are doing things that could be automated, but it's providing like a nice human touch that people enjoy. Property management is the opposite. It's like the humans who are doing it are actually often they're being slower. They're making mistakes that are hurting um, the customers. And uh, the whole industry is really lacking in transparency. Whereas part of what we're doing is because we're building these automated technology platform to handle a lot of these tasks, we can basically just flip access to that onto our owners 
and therefore give them a lot more information than uh, a typical management company does. So like a great example of that is the application process, right? One thing we heard over and over from customers is that it's often a black hole between when they sign up with a management company and when their property is actually rented. Like, yeah, the management company is presumably marketing the property, looking for tenants, but the owners don't really have visibility into that process. So uh, we have this, uh, you know, online kind of application system that helps us list the property, uh, accept applications, coordinate showings uh, with some of our part-time kind of on-demand guys. And then we basically just flip on access to that to our owners so they can log into their castle account and actually see a real-time update of basically the applicant pipeline for their property. How many people have applied? How many have passed our screening? How many have come to a showing? How many provided a reference? We found owners reacted to it as almost like, uh, you know, someone who like invests in stocks and likes to sit at home, like refreshing their stocks to kind of see if the market's moved. You know, they just like to be really close to that data that's connected to how their, their property is performing. So that's kind of just one, one example. Yeah. For those listening to, I am convinced, convinced this is the future. Um, as a side note, if you're wondering what you can do in life or, or, or something like that, or, or a way to make lots of money, if you can figure out how to take current software and rewrite it for another industry and dramatically improve it, I think that's something you can do. Because you hit upon a word that I really like that I really think is the future of this too, is transparency in business. Um, for sure, your generation. I'm at the very beginning Seems like I'm at 35, I got a lot of people who are in the old camp and some people at the very, very edges of the new camp. Um, but I would say for 20 to 30 year olds, um, transparency is, they will make their, their purchasing decisions, their investment decisions, their employment decisions. A lot of that stuff is going to be based on transparency and the beauty of software is that in the right hands makes that a lot a lot better so let's let, what makes uh, what, what makes somebody go how did they, you haven't ever bought property other than the one you're in and mm-hmm. rented it out how did you figure out this was a problem because this is kind of what amazes me just somebody so young I, just people so young I'm gonna say that you're, you're grown men <laughs> but Probably too young, really, to know just how terrible property management is. But somehow you you just kind of end up, I don't know if it was luck or you're poking around, you're like, oh, this is a problem. Like, it's a huge problem, but it's, yeah. to me, it's something, it's, once you do it, you know it's a problem. But somehow, you guys, I, I think it's a good thing to be able to do, to look out from, you know, bird's eye view and go, wait, that's a big problem. You don't even have to participate to know it's a big problem. I think a lot of it really has to do with Detroit, where, you know, one thing I love about the city is there's just such a great community here um, in kind of all areas, but especially the real estate kind of rehabber community, right? So when we bought this house and, and we're fixing it up, and, you know, it, this house is, a, we live here, but there's also other tenants and there's a co-working space on the ground floor. So it is an investment property, even though we're here as well. We just got to know tons and tons of other rehabbers, rental owners, investors, both in Detroit and kind of through our VFA connections, we were talking to lots of them in other states too, because we wanted to be sure, you know, we knew property management was a problem in Detroit, but we, we have ambitions that go beyond this city. We think if it works here, it can work everywhere. We wanted to make sure it was an issue people were having kind of all over. Um, so we just kind of very naturally got to be a part of that community and weren't, it's not like we were sitting around going, man, I wonder if property management is a problem. Like we should look into this. It was that when you know other investors, you just happen to hear about it all the time. And I think we were just like, you, you'd have to be 
totally oblivious not to realize that people are complaining about it so all, all the time. So all your friends are like, fuck, problem management sucks, this sucks. <laughs> and you're like, hey, I can make money here. <laughs> Pretty it's much. Fun. And I think and I think the other thing is that, you know, we we talk a lot about how property management sucks for investors because obviously they're the main customers. But property management also often sucks for tenants. And, oh, sucks really bad. you know, when you're between 20 and 30, everyone you know is a tenant. So we were hearing, hearing complaints on those ends as well. And oh, I mean, I even, about that. and even though, you know, yeah, the tenants aren't the ones who pay us, but kind of our mission is to make they're renting. The yeah, they're the customer they as well. Customer. And our mission is to make renting better for everyone. So, uh, you know, just being, I think, in our age bracket, you're hearing complaints from the other side of the equation just all the time. And frankly, if the tenants are unhappy, it hurts the owner too, right? We, I can't tell you how many times we've had a situation where we've taken over a property from another management company and the owner has said to us, yeah, you know, rent's really late. I think we're going to have to evict. And we'll look into it. And the, the tenant is like, my sewer's been backed up for two weeks. No one from the management company is returning my calls. I'm withholding rent to get their attention. Yes. And it's like, look, this it basically inept management led to this whole series of cascading problems where really if they had just been moderately responsive to the tenant's very reasonable needs, none of this would have been a problem for either the tenant or the investor. So it's really like a virtuous cycle for everyone. That is something I have noticed that is changing very much for the good in Detroit. I moved here in 2007. Yeah, you were part of the real way first wave. Early. You were maybe pre-first wave. You know, you never want to be the first wave. It's like <laughs> when the, you hit the beaches and all like, you know, yeah, that yeah. was I not can't pretty. Even imagine. Just, we got mowed down, right? But um, some of us made it through. The culture in Detroit, which is changing rapidly, really was, who gives a fuck? I mean, I would, like, at, at, McDonald's sucked. <laughs> CVS sucked. The gym sucked. It was like Detroit went out of its way to suck at everything. How how is it? How does McDonald's even suck? What what does when that you, mean? When you wait in line for twenty five minutes for fast food and then you still get the burger cold and smashed, you yeah. know what I'm saying? That's a special kind of uh, a special kind of ineptness. <laughs> a bad attitude problem, I would say. A bad attitude problem. That is something that has been changing. Of late, but I, I would say it's Detroit specific because that was my experience when I came here. Mm-hmm. Moving from a city out west and having traveled and lived all over the world, I was, and I still am sometimes, but it's changing. I was astounded at how poorly not only did everything operate in the city, but everybody's attitude about it was just like, eh, it's a city. Like, it, I'm happy that we have, we have more people in the attitude changing to come in and, and turning it over because. That is also a huge opportunity. I mean, what might 700,000 people do if more businesses actually start catering to what they need? I mean, they might, the whole thing might turn over. Anyway, I digress. So let's go. I'm going to get, I'm going to come back to property management, but I, I just can't push it off anymore. Part of this was before you even had the property management company, mm-hmm. let's go to Wayne County tax auction, which for those listening, um, if you don't know what that is, um, Michigan is not a tax deed. Uh, no, Michigan is a tax deed state, not a tax lien state. Mm-hmm. Meaning if you don't pay your property taxes, if you don't pay your lords your rent, they will come and steal your shit. And how they do it in uh, Michigan is through the auction. And the county um, controls the auction and they auction off property. And you guys were like, hey, let's go to the hood and buy. It's nicer now, but... Mm-hmm. I remember what it looked like yeah. <laughs> in 2009, 2010. Let's, let's go buy a property off 
This was this the first year the ta- the Wayne County tax auction was online, or it was um, second year you bought? I remember. I think it was the second year that it was yeah, online. I don't think yeah. it was the first year. Yeah. So that's a little better than the first year. Yeah, because we've heard the stories of when you had to go in person. Oh yeah, that was terrible. That was terrible. And you're like, hey, let's buy a totally rundown shit house in the hood in Detroit, and let's fix it up. Oh, by the way, we've never done this before. We don't know what we're doing. We're young, and we don't have any money. Go. Tim had the original idea, so I think we can trace the blame back to you. (laughs) I mean, all those things you said are true, so (laughs) that's a good good encapsulation. Uh, The real way it started was the inspiration, I think, came from this guy, Jeff Cowan, who has done very similar rehabs and very similar houses all over this block. We're on Virginia Park Street right now. There's three blocks. Jeff um, has done... Two, three, four rehabs on the first block. Actually, maybe none no, on the none second on block. block. And then he's uh, done three and is going to start his fourth on the third block. Oh, man. And I then, didn't hate this guy. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He's big time. And he's got one like really quite large place in Brush Park that um, I think is mostly rehab. Maybe the attic isn't done yet. It's but, the place, um, you know that vampire movie that was filmed in Detroit? Which one? What was it called? Do you remember the movie? There was some vampire movie with Tilda Swinton filmed in Detroit, set in this abandoned like mansion, and that's the house in Brush Park that Jeff bought. So it's ah, like famous yeah. for only only lovers left alive. Only it was called lovers. Only Lovers Left Alive. Anyways, I'm gonna go look that up. Yeah. So he had done um, similar scopes of rehab in really similar houses because a lot of these houses are were built approximately at the same time, same similar size, similar types of tropes. Um, and he was the landlord of Scott, who's one of our co-founders and also one of the people on this house project with us. So we went to Jeff. Um, we were like, look, we're thinking about doing a similar sort of thing. There's these two houses that are going to auction. Will you walk through both of them and give us like a rough estimate on how much time and money it would take to rehab them? And so one of the houses we went to was this one. Um, he walked through with us. He was like, yeah, it'll take... His estimate was probably like one. 50 175 yeah, to like rehab it and he was like you can get it done in about a year or so i mean he was experienced by that point and we were still novices so yes. it took us more money and time to rehab the house um but imagine that <laughs> we knew it was generally feasible and we knew that the sort of boarding house style um would work for us and get it um like cash flow positive like a good cap rate um flipping is a whole other story just because so much of a property's value depends on the neighborhood and like there's an abandoned house. I can see an abandoned house right yeah, there. There used to be an abandoned hospital over there. So we, we, we're, By the way, the house we're in is beautiful and we can literally look across the street and it is literally a brick street. A street made with bricks. Wow. You and can you barely look, call it a street at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's a little rough. But you look across at a beautiful house and then you look to a not so beautiful house and then you go down one a couple more and it's and that's just kind of the way it is. But it, it, if you see this, these are three, four, five thousand square feet houses, multiple stories, brick, um, inlay, limestone inlay. I think the one across the street might even have a slate roof. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of them still have this one slate roofs. I mean, you're talking about these houses were built when Detroit was one of the richest cities yeah. in the world. This house is 101 years old. But you guys bought a 101-year-old house. You didn't even have money. How did you guys get the money? Yeah, this? so that came in a couple of different phases. Holding up liquor stores? Uh, <laughs> I think if you want money quick, there are better ways than holding up a Detroit liquor store. That was... See where I may have gone wrong now. Okay, listening. Yeah, so um, 
couple different phases. So the first phase was a crowdfunding um, initiative that Venture for America kind of encouraged us to enter. Um, so we raised 10 grand through that, um, through crowdfunding, and then got six grand in prize money from Venture for America for raising the second most in this competition. Um, so that got us, that bought us the house and bought us the, a lot of the dumpsters that we needed to take all the trash out of the house. So the first 16 grand got you the house yep. and got you the dumpsters. Apparently, so this house was just loaded with stuff. Uh, there have, I definitely have seen worse houses, but like there was a lot of refuse from previous occupants and also from a poor, like attempt at a rehab yeah. that had gone on. So like, for instance, this co-working space in here, it's a huge, got high ceilings, whatever. Um, the last attempt at a rehab, they put it, they cut the room in half and they put in a drop ceiling. Oh. So we just knocked out and it was like the... Yeah, it was awful. So we knocked that all out, and like we could literally kick the dividing wall down because it wasn't even attached to the ceiling. Yeah, so that's a Detroit rehab. Right? Oh yeah, they were trying to turn it into an adult foster care home, I think, which is a good, easy way to do cash flow properties, apparently. Yeah. Um, but it was a terrible job, and so a lot of that stuff, like even though we had no experience about what may or may not have been structural, like that wall, we could clearly see it wasn't attached, so we just kicked it down. So that sort of thing, we could do ourselves just with our hands and like really simple hand tools. Um, then we funded up to the first about a hundred thousand, maybe a little less, um, with debt from friends and family, basically. Um, not, not on incredible terms cause it's like private lending on a somewhat risky project. Of course, you're never going to get, um, like a traditional mortgage for the no. house because it has no value. Yeah. Uh, and then the and you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And, right. Of course, they're not going to do it for us. Um, and then the last about a hundred grand came from um, an investor who uh, bought equity in the LLC that owns this house. Ah, so she's okay. now one of our co-owners. Excellent. So that was that was a really so it was like multi. Multi phase. Do you mind saying how much you have into it? Yeah. Ish? Let's Ish? see. So. There's about? 16, and then there's about up to 100 for debt, and then she's put in 120 um, for equity. And then we've, I mean, we've had tenants in here for oh, just over a year now, and so we've been collecting rent and spending what would have gone to like a strategic maintenance fund on continuing like small improvements. Like, for instance, yeah. we just put in a door or like um, add, been adding trim over the past couple months, like touch up paint, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And how many square feet is this house? How many bedrooms? How many square feet? It really, yeah. to like walk people through, because this is a podcast. We do have video going too. <laughs> yeah. This is a podcast. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous house. Sure. So, um, well, you know, from the outside, you described it pretty well. Fits in the neighborhood. Uh, 101 years old, all brick. Used to have a slate roof, but unfortunately, that was going to be about 100 grand to replace. Yeah. So, we went, with, we went with asphalt. Yeah. We're in a historic district. Um, so yeah, it's 3,500 square feet plus about another 1,000 in the basement. There's three stories, seven bedrooms, four bathrooms, um, plus we've got, I mean, what I think is a pretty impressive kitchen. It's nice. It is. And, it's very nice. And this co-working space, which is where we're headquartered along with one other company. And if the audience at home wants to go to our website for Castle, entercastle.com, on the our story page, there's some pictures of the house as well. So they can and you should with their own really house. check that out because it is... Uh... There's a reason why I'm here. It is an impressive undertaking, okay? Uh, I came here and failed right away. So it's an easy thing <laughs> to do. It's a very easy thing to do. So go to Wayne County, buy the house, mm -hmm. fund it, rehab it, multiple stages. Mm -hmm. The plan is to rent it out and service the debt from that point on. Mm -hmm. 
Was all that done in mind with property management or the property man? I kind of got the feeling like while you were doing it, you guys were at least open to the idea of a startup at some point, and then it became apparent to you that property management might be a place yeah. to start. Yep, exactly. That was exactly it. We didn't go into that preconceived idea at all. In fact, we didn't even. God, I mean, we. I think we we really kind of went into this house project almost on a whim. Like, I one of the ways I often feel about big projects is that. If you know how, if you knew how hard they were going to be, you might not even ever do them, but it's actually that naivete that enables you to like take that leap in the first place, you know? So I don't think any of us realized quite how hard it was going to be. <laughs> um, but as we were working on the house, number one, we discovered that we worked really well together and all like working together and, uh, kind of got the idea that we wanted to work on something, uh, in the future. And, you know, the house, wasn't wasn't really a startup it was really kind of a, a small business kind of side project but it was enough of you know we did find an investor we worked together hey, it, it was kind of it was kind of it was, kind of, it, was it was like baby steps you know for a real company and then kind of like i was saying before we just started to explore this world and kind of got sucked into the property management problem and then sort of it was the house who provided kind of a natural jumping off point because by the you know by the end of the project we had learned an enormous amount about uh about investing, about landlording, about the real estate world, and about Detroit. And so it's kind of a very natural jumping off point to start Castle. Yeah, that's it, it's an impressive story. It's, it, is, it is very impressive. So well, thank you. Um, hopefully this won't start a fight. Why partner? I, I always like to ask this question. Um, why? I, you just said it right there. I was going to lead into it right there. You thought you, you worked well together. <laughs> How did that... Because there's also Scott, who isn't mm-hmm. here today, mm-hmm. where he is, but he's... Well, he's here, as in, in this house, yeah, but... he's working. Scott, <laughs> get back to work. Um, how did you guys decide to work together? Did you talk about it? I'm, I'm always interested in this. People are, people just, for some reason, they like partners, the idea. I tend to be like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. What, what was your take on that? How did that happen? Was there a qualification process? What? I mean, the biggest thing, we're, we're all sort of like pre-qualified and um, like predisposed to like and want to work with each other because of Venture for America. They have a really thorough um, screening process. They really want people of a certain type of mindset and attitude. Um, and those types of people end up working together pretty well, usually. Um, so there was pretty high likelihood that we were going to be working together. Um, or at least like be compatible working together. Did they give you a test or is there a test? Uh, it's a pretty, I mean, just to quickly run through it, there's a written application, then there's a phone slash video interview, then there's an all day in person interview that's in group and also individual, and they really grill you. Um, it's like, it's one of the most memorable experiences definitely you'll ever have. And actually, we've both been able to be on the other side of the table as judges during that selection day. Mm. And, uh, I think they've made it even harder since yeah. we joined. It's far, far more intense than any job interview that you'll ever have. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that was pretty good. Max and I were roommates, um, when uh, we moved here and then, um, Max and Scott became friends at this training camp. Um, experience. So then the three of us ended up being friends. Um, and when this opportunity to um, do the house came along through Venture for America's um, this crowdfunding initiative that they were sponsoring and putting up prize money for, um, you know, the tax auction was coming up. Uh, we knew this sort of project could be done. Scott lived in one of those houses. Um, and it just felt like we could make something like that happen. Yeah. And, and I think the Working on the house was kind of like, 
it was the practice run of just working together yeah. as a team where, you know, if we had, if it hadn't worked out, I mean, it would have been a bummer, but it wouldn't be the same kind of risk as if you, you know, start a, a big com- a company with someone and then you realize you don't want to work together, you know? Yeah, this was gonna, it was kind of like a proving ground, yes. essentially. It's kind of like dating before marriage in a way, yeah. honestly. I mean, like, it's... You suck. <laughs> no, you suck. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, I mean, it's probably an overblown analogy, but... Uh, you know, when you're, you're going, starting a business with someone else, you know, especially something like the castle where, you know, I think on a number of levels, uh, one is that we're, our customers and tenants are like very reliant on us, right? So I, there are some kinds of startups where, you know, if you're making an app, you can probably just shut down the next day and be like, sorry, this app's not available anymore. But like, we have people who really are counting on us. So that's not really an option. And we're also backed by a, a bunch of great investors. And so similar, once, you know, your investors have, invested money in you, you can't just like decide you don't like working with each other and aren't going to do it anymore. You know what I mean? You've made a real, a real commitment. Yeah. Um, they'll come kill you. So it was, <laughs> luckily none of our investors are of that type. Like, oh, they won't kill you. Kill our reputations, maybe. Okay. Um, well, who are they? Let's name drop. Who are these investors? Because <laughs> it is not an unimpressive list. Sure. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, one thing we, you know, really tried to do was uh, have uh, investors with kind of relevant experience, both in Detroit and real estate who could... Uh, just advise us and, and you know, find uh, people who really believed in what we were doing. So we're proud to say that Castle's uh, backed by uh, some great people, including uh, Brian Hermelin. He's one of the founding partners of Detroit Venture Partners and Rockbridge Growth Equity, both kind of in the Dan, Dan Gilbert world. Um, we're too small for Detroit Venture Partners right now, but he invested in us personally. Um, Miles Lasseter, who co-founded a company called C-Click Fix. You probably don't know them by name, but they're the, they power the apps that citizens use in cities to report issues like potholes or missing street signs. If you've ever used the Improved Detroit app that the Duggan administration has released, that's powered by C-Click Fix underneath. Um, Jason Hogue, who's uh, the, currently the CEO of Blackstone Buy to Rent Finance, they're one of the biggest uh, financing arms for uh, landlords around the countries. Um, and I see their internet ads all the time now because yeah. I think I went to their page once and I already, the ad trackers already know that I'm interested in real estate and they just really have, uh, have, have lasered in on me. Some people hate that. I I love that personally. So, so that's it. You got serious people. How, how did you convince or, or what did the process look like? I mean, those, I realized for those outside Detroit that I, Trust me, these people are going to go on to do different things in other cities, mm-hmm. and at least a couple of them are going to be huge. You know, one of them owns a basketball team, <laughs> so it's already huge. But how do you convince somebody? What did that process look like? Like, hey, need some money? Here's the idea. <laughs> what do you? I mean, yeah. what did that look like? Well, I mean, I think first I would say, you know, a big part of it was that we were lucky enough through our experience in VFA to even have these connect, have make these connections with a lot of these people in the first place. Not all, our, not all of our investors are associated with VFA, but a good chunk are. And I, so, you know, that's a lot of it is just being even able to get in front of that person to make your pitch, right? And that's where really the network of VFA has been extraordinary, extraordinarily helpful for us. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we raised this money back in February and March. So at that point, Castle had launched. We had a few customers, but it was a, it was a much smaller operation. You know, now we're managing over 100 units in and around Metro Detroit. We were at like, I think, 20 then. So, it, you know, it was much smaller. Um, and it wasn't, we were, it was kind of selling people on the vision and the story more than the numbers because the numbers weren't really there at that point, you know. I think, honestly, the story of the house had a lot, a lot to do with it um, because, they, I think a lot of investors thought, look, these 
these guys did something interesting together. We know they can, they can work together. Uh, they performed well in VFA. Um, let's sort of, uh, they seem to have this idea that it seems like it has some legs. Let's kind of, uh, take a chance on them and, and see where, see where things can go. So networking, follow through. Well, it had two towards networking too, which mm-hmm. is more like opportunity farming. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think I, I really hate the word networking because yeah. like it, it's, I'm always trying to find, I know there's no better word, but I'll, you know, most of, um, the, uh, our investors, it wasn't like one day I was just like, all right, we're trying to raise some money. I better network. It was more like, um, we had just always been trying to, you know, one thing that's amazing, both about VFA and also about Detroit, is that Detroit's a relatively small community. It's much easier to get in touch with people in power in Detroit than it would be if we lived in, say, Manhattan, right? And so I think from day one here, we were always just trying to take advantage of just meeting interesting people uh, where we could and the kind of people we could learn from, right? So um, like with Miles, uh, he uh, is associated with VFA. He came to Detroit to visit um, I just knew that he had started this company, C Click Fix. It was really interesting. So I volunteered to just drive around on a tour of Detroit. We ended up hanging out that day. I wasn't even thinking of him as a potential investor at that That's point. That's a brilliant idea, though. You were an opportunity farmer. Right? <laughs> you didn't even know it. You right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or you made, no, actually, you did know it because you, you guys went out of your way, even if you didn't know what you wanted to do, to hang out with people that you were interested in and doing things that you might be interested in doing at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the attitude we've taken towards our investors as well. Is like, we're not just looking for people who are going to cut us a check and then disappear. Right. We're look, especially at such an early stage, like people who've, um, who have experience in real estate, in business and startups, people who are older than us, who we can learn from, you know, that's a huge part of the value that our investors add as well. It's not just kind of handing over a sack of cash and then disappearing. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm going to take this opportunity again. You're sitting, you're probably sitting at home or maybe you're working out. I don't know. Um, maybe you realize how much your life sucks, how much you hate your job. Wow, this got dark. How screwed you really are. And you're thinking, gee, what should I do? Um, hey, renegadedetroit.com. Go to meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors. Um, if you're interested in real estate, there's lots of websites you can go to. Just get out, network. I love Meetup. That's how I met these guys. They came to the RDI meeting, the Renegade Trade yep. Investor meeting. Um, even if you don't know what you do, start putting yourself in a position where you can have some opportunity. Yep. Surround yourself with some people who are thinking about things more uh, more than just uh, what, what, what they're going to watch on TV tonight when they get home or, or, or that kind of thing. I just wanted to point that out. They, they, this was a managed process. Uh, they did this on purpose. They didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but they managed the human farming capital process. <laughs> right? So so I just want to put that in there. Also, facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Um, and if you're not in Detroit, go to meetup.com. Find something. Do something. Anyway, so here we are. What a brilliant idea to, to, to volunteer to give someone like that. <laughs> I, I wish mean, I could say it was all pre-calculated, but... Hey, there's opportunity just... cost at the moment, too. <laughs> so, all right. what? How disruptive do you think you guys can actually be? I was kind of saving this question. I was going to push it a little bit more towards the end, but I feel like we're there. I feel <laughs> like I have good rapport. I got some good questions. 
I mean, how far do you think you can go? You're at 100 plus units right now. Mm -hmm. How many years? One? Less than one, yeah. Less Launched in January of this year. You have an app. So, yeah. Okay. So I think, I mean, it's funny. One of the, running a startup, there's a lot of kind of holding two opposing ideas in your head at once, right? Like you have to, on the one hand, Lot, be very logical and rational and know that most startups fail and be very aware of all the problems in your business and not look at it with rose-colored glasses. But at the same time, you also have to have that like deep-down belief that even though the odds are against you, that you can succeed and that what you're working on is something that could be potentially really impactful. Yeah, functionally um, delusional. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's a great word. So when I look at it, I mean, you know, big picture, you look at the property management world right now, it's mostly small companies, kind of very fragmented um, lots of realtors who do management on the side, someone who owns a construction company and also manages. There's a few national firms, but they're not really even that well-known. You know, ultimately, I want Castle to be like Xerox, where like, yeah, Xerox makes a copy machine, but everyone just calls it a Xerox machine. Like, I want Castle to be so well-known that everyone thinks of Castle as just like the standard for property management. I like it. That, that tenants, if they're deciding between two houses and one is managed by Castle, if they want to live in the one run by Castle more because they know there's a certain standard of responsiveness and quality. And, you know, so right now, the majority of U.S. landlords, so one in seven Americans is a landlord. They're everywhere in the U.S. 80% of those guys don't use property management. Only 20% do. Oh, I know there's not that whole 80%, but there's another chunk there who are sick of doing it themselves and who want something like Castle but aren't using current management because it has a bad reputation or it's too expensive or you know, a million other reasons. So, you know, long term, I don't want to just be uh, getting customers who are already all kind of already in the management world, but I want to be encroaching off that 80% as well and, and um, kind of improving life for the people who uh, haven't even looked at, at property management yet. It is fragmented. There, it, it, To me, it feels like the real estate industry is still operating on a fax machine. It is. And li literally, in yeah, many yeah. cases. It, 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 and for some reason, it seems to be, although it's not impervious, resistant mm -hmm. to technology. And I didn't know that one in seven Americans mm -hmm. um, own rental yeah. real estate. Yeah. That's, that's amazing to me. Yeah. Um, or investment real estate. Yeah. It's not necessarily rental, but investment real yeah. estate. Mm -hmm. right? Yep, yep, yeah. That's amazing to me. How... How has this gone just ignored? This is like one of these opportunities. How has this gone so ignored? I mean, this is it's amazing. I just I didn't know that. That's a huge, huge that's a market's gotta be, I mean, what what is that, like thirty-five million or, or something? What's as far as the number of landlords? Yeah, yeah, what is that? I mean divide, divide. <laughs> How many people live in the US? Seven hundred million? Four hundred no, million. Four hundred million? There's like three hundred and fifty million people in okay. the United States. Three hundred and fifty million. Um, and then approximately a third of Americans are renters or live in rental 50 households. million. You yeah. have potentially 50 million customers. Yep. That and, is a huge market. And, yep. I mean, management, including commercial management, so it's a little bit mixed, but management um, is a $70 billion a year industry, and you figure only 20% of residential landlords are using management. So let's be very rough and say half of that $70 billion is residential, so 35 a uh, billion dollars a year represents 20% of Be landlords. with a billion yeah. for those listening, not million. Be with a billion. Yeah, so it's a huge market. Um, and if you look at the companies that are doing it, um, 
three quarters of all property management companies are sole proprietorships. So it's just one guy. Um, almost all the rest of those have five or fewer employees. There's only four property management companies that have national presence, but three of those are commercial only. So the idea of a national residential focused property management company is, it basically doesn't exist. It's just this one. Um, and the idea of like, they don't have a brand name clearly. Like I, I don't even, maybe CBRE, I think it is, but like it yeah. escapes me. I'm sure it would escape almost anyone who's using management. So one thing yeah. I always find is funny is that for, especially for some reason in real estate, people just have the most uncreative names. So you'll have like real property management, Detroit property management, Metro Detroit property management, genuine Detroit property management. Genuine. And it's just like, oh, yeah. people, I'll, I'll, we'll sometimes hear from customers who they can't even tell me the name of their current management company Ooh. and you can't even search for it because the name is like also the generic yeah, term that for that. fucking brand <laughs> failure. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. It's a smoking crater of brand. What were they again? Bob, it's a, the 248 number. Oh, Jesus. That is some sad shit. But that's also the truth, right? That is, I don't know what it's like in other cities, but that is the state of the union, essentially, for property management and Detroit. And it's it's like that in other cities, too. I mean, I think the incidence of misbehavior and outright fraud is higher in Detroit. For sure. Um, but, you know, we've talked to investors and uh, tenants in uh, all over the country, you know, in a lot of markets and it's a problem that everyone uh, can identify with every single time. You know, one thing that's, that is kind of so great about these one in seven Americans owning investment property is that every single person I talk to about Castle, either they own an investment property, their uncle owns an investment property, like everyone's only one or two degrees away from someone who's experienced this problem. And I hear it about other cities all the time. Not quite as bad as Detroit, I don't think. Yeah. And that's part of what's exciting about starting here is we know, look, if we can make this work here... We can definitely make it work in Baltimore and Cleveland and LA and Miami and places where like it's I'm not quite glad as crazy. You said that. You're like the third person I know who's ever said that. And for those listening and watching, you may not understand it, but some of us, for some strange reason, want to do it. Want to do it in the worst environment possible, <laughs> just to say we did it. Well, and I don't know. It's like a chip on my shoulder. I want to do it. <laughs> Well, you can't do it. Fuck you, I can't do it. Watch me. You know? I think it, it ties into the question you were asking earlier about why haven't more people noticed this opportunity. It's one thing I'm really interested in, and it's something that VFA really engenders, is, um, you know, you're naturally, when you are a startup founder, you're naturally drawn to solve the problems that you have direct exposure to in your own life. And I think... Uh, there's a lot of sort of wasted talent right now because the startup world is so centered around Silicon Valley. Uh, People move to Silicon Valley and then they naturally gravitate towards starting problems that companies that solve problems that they encounter there. So that's why there are 10 different startups that help like rich people get their laundry done faster. Right. Or, you know, there are, there are, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there's a startup I just read about that is delivering on-demand condoms in San Francisco and Manhattan. I can see I, I can actually, it could be, it could work. And you know what? But, they, they donate a condom to someone in the developing world every time you do. So I don't want to knock that company in particular. But like, I get none of point. these companies that's, are bad, but... That's not a $50 billion or $35 well, billion. It could be. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that uh, would be but, us. But, of... but, yeah. but I think, you know, people, lots and lots of really, really smart people are moving to a few sections of the country where they're just not going to be exposed to the kind of problems that actually affect the majority of the country. 
And certainly, I, I'm not knocking those people. Look, if I hadn't found BFA and I had moved to New York and maybe started a company, I probably, I never would have known about kind of the, you know, this problem that we're working on or so many other things that are more like real world problems because you're just not exposed to them. No, that's an um, interesting idea. So if you're listening at home and maybe you're the next Bill Gates or Steve Jobs and you're like, hey, life is good. It's sunny. Everything's working great. Maybe uh, change your physical location. <laughs> yeah, come to Detroit where it's never sunny and nothing works. Yeah, where, <laughs> that shit is the truth. It was sunny yesterday. <laughs> yeah, summer, not, summer in, summers in Detroit are pretty great. They're just two weeks long. Yeah, and the nothing works is enough to, I swear to God, it's, it's half the reason why I'm losing my hair. <laughs> more, more and more things are, are starting are, to it's work. It's getting better. We're just, yeah. new streetlights are going up all around my neighborhood. It's been pretty great. We, we have a positive attitude, but until you've lived here and you're like, what do you mean it just doesn't work? Just, just try it. Yeah. Just, uh, just try doing one thing, like getting electricity turned on. You used to do it in another city. You call once, boom, it's 15 minutes. Is everything okay? It's all turned on. How many days here? Oh, my God. Well, our gas line. Well, the I think the worst example of Detroit, even versus, like, a near suburb, is the water department. Oh. I'm sure you've had many encounters with DWSD. Privatize and sell that thing to yeah. Wall Street, please. I think they're going through a restructuring right now because yeah. it's its own separate from the city. But anyway, so we have, like, a guide for new tenants that we send to everyone who's just signed a lease with us. And it gives them instructions on how to change over utilities, like... Um, what the moving process is going to look like, how they should do the inspection, like moving walkthrough. Um, and that there's an appendix that goes city by city about how, what the procedure is for switching water into your name. Yeah. And so the line items for like Dearborn or like Ferndale is like, call this number and ask them and they'll change the name on the bill from the owner's name to your name. But in Detroit, it's like, you need to bring in your social security card. You need to bring in $112 deposit. You have to take up a meter reading. Um, it's like absurd. It, uh, I don't know why that is. I mean, there's a lot of fraud that has to do with the water department, but just the idea of like the, the amount of pain that like you have to go through to deal with any sort of city department and right across the border, it's a snap of the fingers. And this is for a process where you're putting the bill in your name. So you're taking on yeah. payments. So yeah. why would people be fraudulently accepting responsibility for payments? Like you think the fraud would be in the other direction. to worry about. Yeah, it is. A, well, this, I'm going to date myself here. And you guys probably aren't going to know what I'm talking about. But do you guys ever hear of Phoenix Real Estate? Uh, I have heard that name. It was a Detroit thing that is disappeared, right? Oh, yeah. They did thousands of deals. Probably, I don't even know, maybe tens of thousands of deals. Wow. Most of them, I think towards the end, especially fraudulent. Yeah. But how I actually used to get a water bill read was there's a lady who worked there. Yeah. Her name was Sonia. And her auntie worked at the uh, Detroit Water Department. Yeah. And how the only way I could ever get a final water bill read was I paid her $75. And somehow, her and her auntie would figure it out. And the next day, I would get a final water meter. And I just had to give them a digital picture of the water meter in the house. Yeah. There was one. Yeah. yeah. Does the auntie still work there? Can you hook us up? I or? wish she did. She disappeared when Phoenix went out of business. But I remember her name was Sonia. And um, I think I just admitted to bribing. Well, no, I'm bribing the relative. Of, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Is yeah. that legal? Allegedly, I didn't do any of that. It was a story I just told. A friend of mine. Yeah, speaking of which, um, I forgot to do my legal disclaimer, too. By the way, if you're listening, um, 
none of this can be construed as legal advice. This is uh, the opinion of three, uh, maybe slightly smarter than average Ouch. primates, but uh, <laughs> primates nonetheless. So uh, before you do anything or invest anything or anything like that, please contact an attorney if you're choosing. Yep. And don't fucking sue me. All right, so, so you plan on being pretty disruptive, basically. Like some sort of, I don't know, Trump of property management. Oh, boy. I don't want to be spun as the Trump of anything. Hey, his name is recognized worldwide everywhere just for quality. <laughs> hey, he doesn't make a billion dollars by being a total idiot, but... Um, uh, so you want to disrupt everything, something like a national brand mm-hmm. of some sort. Okay. Any idea? Well, don't tell me. Don't give me away any trade secrets, but any ideas on how you might accomplish this just by, except for maybe just by doing the job too? That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, really just the key is our technology, right? That's kind of the secret sauce for everything. It's what It's what enables us to internally be more efficient, meaning we need fewer property managers uh, per amount of units than a typical management company. That's what lets us uh, bring, save those, pass those savings on to customers. It's what lets us provide a better experience for customers and tenants. Um, you know, we internally, like we think of ourselves as a technology company that applies their technology to property management, not a property management company uh, necessarily. And that's I think that's. I think of you guys too, <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. And I mean, that's why Scott, who's our third co founder, is upstairs coding right now. That's why he's not in this interview. Like a good you know. boy. <laughs> Doing what he should. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so shout out to Scott. But you know, most property management companies don't have one full-time software developer on their founding team of three. No. Um, and that's kind of emblematic of, of what we're trying to do. And actually, all three of us are software developers to some degree, but yeah. me and Tim don't actually do much of it for Castle. In part because uh, neither of us were great, and at this point we have actual professional developers on, on staff who are far better than us, also just because we're focused on other things. Well, yeah, somebody has to grow the business. And you need some- okay, so... Software. I, I think that really is that really is the the, the future there uh, of software. What? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about. I'm gonna take it back down. I'm gonna go go back up. So here we are, Castle Intercastle.com. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Yeah, we gotta mention the URL repeatedly. Intercastle.com. So, uh, <laughs> uh, what's your Twitter? At Intercastle. Uh, yeah, Inter- everything's Intercastle. Yeah, yeah, Intercastle for any Twitter folks, right? I think that's their Facebook page too. What would you say separates you? I know we've been talking about it for a while. But what separates you from the other property management companies in Detroit? Metro Detroit, yeah. Michigan, yeah. perhaps the world. Yeah, so, I mean, the uh, I would never just say technology because I think, like, internally the technology is what makes it all work, but, like, technology in itself isn't a benefit, right? It's only how that technology is applied and what it can be used for. So for the key differences, I think, for us, one is uh, we're cheaper in most cases, but more importantly, we just have a really simple fee structure. One of the things that inspired us to start this business was uh, we wanted to correct a lot of the, what we saw as the perverse incentives of the typical management company. One thing we heard all the time was customers would say, I thought I signed this contract. I thought I was paying X percent, but really there were all these other fees I didn't realize when I got my final bill wasn't even what I thought. So we charge a flat fee of $79 a unit a month. That's it. There are no extra fees for tenant placement, for lease renewal, for uh, setup, for anything like that. Um, and 
Uh, the second really is that increased transparency slash increased uh, information. So I talked about the applicant's uh, view earlier. Another great example is when there's maintenance issues on your property, you'll see in real time on our website when a new issue has been created. And then you'll basically see all the updates, almost kind of like Facebook newsfeed that represent what we're doing internally to address the situation. So like you won't just see a new issue and then, oh, we fixed that issue. You'll see, oh, okay, new issue has been created. Here's a photo the tenant sent in. All right, we uh, contacted the plumber to go take a look. All right, plumber said it'd be out on Tuesday. All right, plumber estimates this much for the fix. And all right, here's the photo of the completed work. And you're actually seeing that all come in in, in real time. That's amazing. So you can basically just be way more informed about what's going on with, with your properties than I think the typical management company can offer. So basically... You acknowledge that there's technology and cell phones in this world, and you developed a software to make that a reality for the landlord. Pretty much. I mean, the way the way I kind of think of our owners is I call them informationally hands-on, meaning they don't want to be hands-on and like having to actually do the work themselves. That's why they hire us, but it's their property. And you know, one thing about real estate investing, as I'm sure you know, is that like emotions are always involved even when you follow the best advice like not let your emotions get ahead of you you know it's a home you own and someone else is living in there and there is that emotional connection in a way that i think people don't quite feel when they own a stock let's say and so people really want to know they just want to know what's going on you know yeah they want another company to take care of it for them but they want to be kept in a loop like it's not that much to ask but it's something that the typical management company does a really really bad job of they do they do a freaking terrible job so you just talk about this app let's walk I know they can't see it, but let's, how'd you come up with the app? What does the app currently offer? What do you think the future of the app? Just kind of, you know, walk me through what you're thinking. And please, if there's any like stage six funding <laughs> or trade secrets or anything like that, keep your mouth shut on that. But I, I am curious, you know, let, let's talk about it. And, and also it's a global economy. So uh, I know you have investors from around the world as well. So yeah. Just talk about that. Sure. So, well, first off, yeah, people can go to our website, entercastle.com, see a demo video, kind of details of stuff there. Um, but kind of the quick info, it's a web app right now, so it works on your phones, tablets, computers, kind of everywhere. Um, the key uh, pieces are basically the, the core of what we do, right? So finding and screening tenants, so there's the applicant section of, of the um, app that lets you keep tabs on that. Um, maintenance, maintenance section we kind of just talked to. Uh, you can see photos of your property, details about tenants, information about all your documents. Um, and then it also makes it really easy to get started with Castle. So when you get started with us, you can submit all the information we need, sign your management agreement online. Uh, you can set the rent that you'd like to charge for your property. We actually have rental estimates built in to the app. So you can see, all right, here's what comps in the area make it seem like your property should rent for. And then you tell us what rent you'd like to start at. And then our team will, you know, uh, reach out to you if it needs to, if we think it needs to be adjusted down or whatever we'll we'll kind of work with you um, but you can kind of direct direct the whole process from there um, and we're constantly adding uh, adding uh, kind of more improvements there's a new version coming out every every week or two um, so as for what the future holds I don't want to make too I like to under promise and over deliver so I, I don't want to say too much um, what's today's date <laughs> August 16th but 17 17 August 17th 2015 <laughs> Um, You're on the record, sir. But we've got some really big things planned, and I think we've just scratched the surface of, of what we could do. Uh, close left. I like <laughs> that. Tab, global economy. Mm-hmm. What percentage of your investors are out of state or out of country? 
And, well, out of state and out of country. And or. Yeah. I mean, just that group would be the vast majority. I would yeah, say. like 80%? Yeah. And then as far as specifically out of country, I don't know, maybe like a third? Does that sound Yeah, right? I, th- I think probably about 30% out of country. That's amazing. Yeah, and they tend to hail from a few countries. So we've got at least a couple in Australia, um, a couple, a few in the UK, mm-hmm. um, two in Israel, I think. Yeah. And no, three, three now. Yeah. Yeah. Those ten, those are the big. Those ones. are the big ones. But we got customers all over. One from South Africa, one from Dubai. Yeah. Um, That's one thing that I, that frustrates me about the local real estate community too is we basically get together and. I'm always harping, but everybody gets together and pretends like the only people doing anything are the ones that are physically here right now. Like yeah. you can't buy and manage real estate from another country or another state. Yeah. Ship happens all the time. Um, what are you guys doing this working? Like, how are you finding your customers? What are you doing? What's, what's your marketing look like? Do you have a budget? That kind of thing. What, what are you guys, um, how are you guys doing that? I think a big part of it has just been our, our reputation. I mean, one thing we've been really excited about is that we've gotten just tons and tons of referrals from our, our current customers. We've had people who have referred us to other customers even before they started using us. Like we had one woman who just saw us. She was like, I don't close on my property for two months, but this already looks amazing. I'm going to tell my friend about it. Um, and, you know, I think we've been uh, just lucky enough to have built up a really good reputation over over the past few months just by... Uh, getting involved with the community and like doing a good job, frankly. Um, we, uh, you know, we do find a lot of people online. We don't put a ton, we don't put a ton of money, um, into, uh, advertising, uh, right now because, you know, we're a small scrappy startup. We're not spending a, a ton of money on, on anything, but just kind of networking with, uh, like-minded investors online on places like Bigger Pockets has been great for us. Um, and coming to, uh, meetups as well. Um, the Renegade one's probably been the, the best one. I think it's pretty obvious that, it kind of has a different flavor than your yeah, typical yeah. typical real estate meetup. Um, That's, great. That's uh, a nice way to put it. <laughs> uh, in, a, in a very positive way. Yeah. Um, and also... You um, haven't been stabbed yet. That's <laughs> um, and, and we are also lucky enough to get a lot of referrals from uh, real estate salespeople in the area as well, wholesalers, stuff like that. I mean, those guys always have customers who are looking for property management and it benefits them to be able to recommend someone good. Um, and we are starting a referral program as well to actually... Uh, actually reward them. So if there's any wholesalers listening, uh, definitely reach out to us. We'd, we'd love to chat. Yeah, see, I, re- I referred a few to you guys happily too. Um, <laughs> I think I think what you guys are doing. What, what do you think you might do in the future? How do you think you're going to grow that? Obviously, easier to keep customers than to get new ones. Yeah, so that that helps. Yeah. So um, how do you think you're going to go from 100 to 300? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think our you know kind of partnerships are expanding. Our our referrals are expanding. And then again, I kind of I kind of like to stay tight-lipped, but we've got some exciting projects in the pipeline, uh, kind of that are going to lead us to find customers in uh, ways that are pretty different from the way the typical real estate company finds customers. And that's all I'll say for now. But you'll know when they've watched. If they go to Twitter at Intercastle, they go to Facebook, they can follow you there. Yep. And as these things happen, mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah, because okay, so they're going to be listening. They're like, I want to know. Well. Go follow. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, we always love talking to people involved in real estate in the community. So even if you're not an investor yet, even if you have properties, but you're not, you're not interested in using Castle, uh, please reach out to us. You can sign up on our website just to kind of get updates about what's going on with us. We won't barrage you. They're not too frequent. And we always love to chat personally. So please get in touch even if you're not, you know, a direct prospective customer right now. Okay. So you guys got some shit that works. All right. I'm, I'll, this is interesting. So. <laughs>
You guys have also been, I mean, you're, you're turning some heads. So what we are, uh, Detroit terms up, time, November 2014. Rebuilding a Detroit home to live in in hopes of rebuilding the city. Fast Company, October 2014. The Detroit Free Press Venture for America Startup Program takes a shine to Detroit, August 2014. My favorite, four guys, one gutted house, and an unfair advantage. I could not for the life of me figure out how it was an unfair advantage. <laughs> <laughs> the tenant's dream. Yeah. The tenant's from VFA. But... It's like it's a great it's a great title in there. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a sketchy one. So the local media and other people are noticing what you're doing. And first property management, one of the first property management companies I've seen who has got some some press. Um, what was what was it like being interviewed for Fast Company? I was just curious. Dude. It's one of my favorite. <laughs> it's one of my favorite magazines and websites uh, as far as that goes. Yeah, so. God, yeah, it was great. They they were one of the people who kind of got it pretty easily. You know, that was one of the better articles sometimes. Sometimes when you're being interviewed, it's like you just, people are just really confused and you have to do a lot of clarifying about what you're doing. And especially, I do understand it can be a bit of a confusing story for us because it's like we restored this house and then we started Castle, but Castle doesn't restore houses. Like, it's not what our company does. It was more like one thing led to another. Um, I don't know. It was fun. Um, I think, you know, we've... um, been very lucky to get the press we've gotten and to be honest I, I can't really explain how it's happened it's just sometimes um kind of people people take notice you know and i think we've been um um you know because we started out funding this house with a crowdfunding campaign and it was you know we raised ten thousand dollars the vast majority of which were in increments of fifty hundred dollars so that meant there was a big list of people there were over a hundred people who had donated um, mostly, you know, friends and family, although we did get a couple just like random strangers who thought the project was cool. But one thing that's really key with any crowdfunding campaign is you don't want to, people just give you money and then you disappear off the face of the earth. You have to really engage them, keep them engaged, keep them feeling like they're a part of the project. And actually, eventually we're going to have actually everyone in this house gets a little like two inch by two inch square with their initials or something else they want painted in so that they're actually a part of the house. Wow. So we've been sending out regular updates from day one, keeping a blog with photos, video tours, stuff like that. So it kind of meant that if Where's anyone... that blog at? Uh, and that blog is at rebirthrealty.com. That was kind of the catchy little name we there gave to our, our project. Rebirthrealty.com. Um, so for those who are really interested in following the house, which at least you should go check it out, go to rebirthrealty.com. Exactly. So, you know, I think that meant that if, if someone kind of heard about our project, there was an easy way for them to kind of find out a lot more online and maybe that made them perhaps more interested in kind of telling the story. Well, no, I think engagement is, especially for the, I hate um, generalizing, but I don't know how else you speak about humans. (laughs) Unless you're just talking about one or you're going to talk about all. It does seem to be, if you're under 30, engagement really matters. Like the difference between success um, at least when it comes to crowdfunding, when I, when I look at Sister Pie, yeah. when I when I look at all these other local startups, um, Always Brewing Detroit, mm-hmm. System, there's a bunch of them. Um, one thing they've all done well, Drifter, Drifter Coffee, is they engage their target audience and or their investors constantly, and in a lot of different ways, too. So I did, did you guys plan that, or, or did somebody make that obvious to you, or how did you decide to do it? Uh, you know, I, we definitely wanted a record for ourselves of That's the, a good point. the progress of the house. And so having a, a blog with, 
um, an external audience, most naturally the people who crowdfunded us. Um, it was a way to achieve that goal while also um, helping them feel like their money didn't just disappear into a black hole. Because I don't know how, how much you've dealt with um, crowdfunding, but no, a lot of times, like for anyone who is a veteran of backing Kickstarter projects, like you know that sometimes you give them money and then who knows what happened to them. Like maybe they just absconded to, I don't know, like Central Asia with it and they're going to live Thanks, in a year forever. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's it's just they're really late and you get it two years after you ordered it and you forgot that you even bought it. But yeah, anyway, the point is... Um, That's poor communication. You should yeah. know what's going on, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, the house is... A house is never really done, but the house is basically done. And so um, th- th- we're past the flurry of like updates and photos. But um, yeah, it's a nice sort of time capsule. So do you guys... So you want to make a record for yourself and you're like, hey... These people should know anyway. Yeah. It's what I would want, right? Yeah. Okay. So I, I like that. I like that perspective. Max, this is something I find very interesting. Journal for 22 years. <laughs> See, we took a look at the uh, personal website to prepare, huh? I did. I... <laughs> well, more than 22 years, actually. I did that talk when I was 22. So that was just where the timeline ended. But right. I have been doing it my whole life, more or so, less. Yeah, let's... I I have a hate love relationship with journaling. I have been attempting to journal diligently for five years, and it ends up being I journal for a couple weeks. I yeah. don't journal for a couple weeks. I journal for a couple weeks. I don't, you know, yeah. start stop. It's something I keep striving to do. But you've done it for twenty how many years now? Twenty five. Well, I'm twenty five, so 25. all of the years. <laughs> all of, at least from when you did write. Well, actually, this is one thing I addressed in the talk. The way it all got started is that when I was a baby, like less than a year old, I had a nanny who kept a journal for me. It was basically just all about what I ate and how many times I pooped. So then when I got old enough to read, I basically had this logbook from my baby years. It's super boring because a, a baby's life is very boring. But so the, the joke is kind of that I started journaling basically at age zero. I just had someone else doing it for me. And then I picked it up once I was old enough to take over. Okay. Well, <laughs> how do you journal? And um, I didn't actually, I didn't want to ruin it for myself, but I will include the link in the show notes too. <laughs> what have you learned from journaling? Oh boy. Well, I guess I, I was going to say, I don't even know, but I guess I gave that talk about the things yeah. I've learned. Um, yeah. I mean, I, so I think people a lot of times are like, oh my God, like I tried to journal and then I just went six months without doing it. And it's like, I do that all the time. Like it doesn't, I don't write every day or even every month. You know, I've gone long stretches of time without putting anything in there, but it's definitely been this kind of constant presence in my life. Um, it's kind of a hard question to answer because it's not, it's just something I sort of found myself doing and I didn't like decide I should keep a journal and then like really force myself to do it. You know, I think in general, I'm not someone who has like incredible, uh, like discipline or self-control. And anytime someone looks at me and like, wow, you did that project, it must just taken so much discipline and been so hard. It's just like, for whatever reason, it wasn't something that I had to force myself to do. And like, like with the house, like, yeah, we worked on it nights and weekends for, you know, two years, but it only rarely felt like, oh man, I have to like actually force myself to work on the house today. You know? That's how I feel about farming. Interesting. Yeah. I bet that it sounds really analogous. Yeah. So, okay. Do you, is it electronic? Do you write by hand? Is there a process you follow? I mean, just whatever. Sometimes electronic, sometimes by hand, no process, like no rules. Basically I just write stuff. Okay. I don't know. It's hard to. 
Um, I think... Well, do you even think there's a benefit? Um, probably. I think, I think that I often, like, I'm better at thinking if I'm writing what I'm thinking. Like, it just forces you to be more structured and organized with your thoughts. I think a lot of people who write will say the same thing, that you don't really realize exactly what you think until you write it down. Um, so I think that's helpful. And I also just like it. I mean, kind of like Tim was talking about, we wanted to have the record of the house. I mean, my life is a bigger project than the house. And I kind of feel like I have this record, although probably fairly inaccurate, uh, of my own life. Um, but I definitely don't, it's just something I do for its own sake because I like doing it or just find myself sort of driven to, it's not any kind of rational, like a cost benefit calculation or anything like that. You know, I think I would I'm not doing it, I'm just doing it because I want to, I guess. I'm not doing it because I see, like, a benefit that will come, although I think many have. Well, no, I just noticed that, uh, especially as I do more interviews, that some things start to come out. There's some things that rise to the top, and I'm Mm -hmm. noticing that journaling is uh, one of the things. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of, some sort of record that's kind of rising to the top, which leads me to some of my success questions I have. Well, first off, I think we're all flattered to already be considered a success enough that we get the success questions. So, well, um, I think success isn't an event, right? Yeah. So, I, my definition of success is doing what you want, and the longer you can do that, the more successful you are. So, you right, for I like that, years, right? So, and success isn't a thing; it's a habit, right? Sure. So ask questions. Like, you successfully crowd funded a house. Mm-hmm. You successfully rehabbed it through multiple stages. You successfully started a property management company. You successfully developed property management software. I mean, you could be homeless and toothless tomorrow, shooting up heroin. But as today, you're not doing any of that, right? So what success happens? Like, is there something you do? Do you wake when you wake up in the morning? Do you have a, do you have a routine? What, what, what does your day look like? Uh, I have some specific questions, but I always like to keep it general first, just to see kind of what I catch with on that here. So, hmm. what well, do you think? Uh, did you did you do daily that um, influences your success? Jeez, uh, I think trying to be careful is the wrong word, but like always trying to engage with whatever you're doing. You, it's very it's very possible to live a passive life just to react to anything that happens to you but um, there's a whole like extra world out there if you're willing to engage the very simplest and most concrete form of this I think is you never get what you don't ask for so so many times there are things that if you want something you ask for it you'll often get it even though it's not like on the menu and that applies all in life um, where you can sort of ask the world to like give you these chances or be able to do these things, and it's up to you to to do it. Um, I think there's some good ones we have for our team that we've mm-hmm. evolved. Um, I knew it. Yeah, so these things aren't accidents. I yes, don't think they are. Uh, a lot of this I would credit to Venture for America for like instilling these things in us in the training camp. Um, so as a team, probably the most important thing that we do is um, regular feedback. So approximately every six weeks, um, we in our working teams, we will fill out uh, basically surveys about each other that have a list of oh. questions. It's like one to six. It's like never to always or whatever. However you, it's subjective, but six being the most, one being the least. And also a few open response. It's like, what has this person done well since last feedback? What have they done poorly? How have they improved? And then additional comments. And then 
all the feedback is compiled, you get an average for each of your questions, and also you get all the written responses. And everyone who filled out your feedback will go in turn and say, basically say in words what they wrote down. Um, and you're supposed to just absorb it. You're not supposed to be defensive or try to rebut what they're saying. You can reject their feedback if you want, but it's, it's supposed to be a one-way street. Um, is it, do you know who's giving you the feedback, or is it anonymous? It is anonymous. Uh, well, I compile it, so I see what everyone's saying. It is, in theory, anonymous. And so it, that would happen, it, it could be anonymized, <laughs> but... Um, like we do it, the co-founders do it with each other. So like, it's pretty obvious who of, of the two people, like who <laughs> is saying which thing. Uh, and when you do it in person, so the scores are anonymized, but then the written responses are usually touched on when you are receiving your feedback from each person in turn. So that's obviously not anonymous. Um, but yeah, that helps. A lot of teams break down because um, like wounds fester and become go from like, maybe even like pet peeves to just like uh, horrible like personal hatred that destroys enterprises yeah I can um, imagine that. and so this feedback process like tamps down on any of those things and brings them into the daylight before they can really become the monsters that they can be no I, man i could use some help with this <laughs> um, i'm for me i'm terrible to work with i i know it i just i know it i try and improve on it daily I can't even imagine having something like that. So, so that actually works, right? Yeah, and it's very hard at first. Like I remember when we had to do it, we were forced to do this at training camp. You get put in small mm. groups there. It was like and, starting a workout routine, like the first couple months. Yeah, sucked. yeah, yes, it was brutal. Like everyone's really awkward. They're like, maybe I shouldn't be saying this. Like, are they going to take it personally? And like, Ooh. people do take it personally, but you have oh, to yeah. say it for their own benefit anyway. Um, and. So we really liked that. So when we started the company, we were like, we need to do this some sort of feedback. And for us, for us at the beginning, it was also still like kind of difficult. Um, but you know, we just did one. I think it was last Friday. Yeah. And by now, it's like there's a couple minor things that we can sometimes talk about. Or it's like I noticed you slipped on this thing this month, but you've been good on in the past. Like just so you know. Um, We've all been, because we know what we need to improve on from these feedback sessions, we've all been improving. Like, our scores have gone up. There's less to complain about. So, um, yeah, I would say it works wonders. And especially if you're doing something in a team, like, probably the number one reason a lot of many, I think it's number one. Yeah, it is the number one reason. Is that the team breaks down. And so, this, I'm telling people, anyone listening, this is the solution. (laughs) To stopping that from happening. I'm listening. We hope you're listening. I need to hear this. The secret is everybody thinks I'm doing this for for the podcast, but the secret is, is <laughs> just for you. It's, it's, a, great, it's yeah. a great excuse because if you just called me up and said, "Hey, can I interview you?" you just personally, you. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. Next week. But you get a microphone on the table, and then yeah, yeah. So I, I need to hear this because I suck at this. I suck at this. Well, you sound like you're pretty good at giving feedback to yourself right now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. It's, it's one thing is you say you suck at it. I'm like, what do you say, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> I remember last month. No, no, that's okay. So what? the feedback is structured. Yes. What? What about the? So this is like a self improvement loop or an awareness. Mm-hmm. Loop. I shouldn't say self improvement. It's a peer peer review awareness loop. Yeah. Is there a second part of that where, um, like, do you provide some sort of plan, or or what is the plan after you do this peer review? Nothing. Peer review? It's just. To say it, 
And then you individually, you have the choice. I think so it's just like stepping on the scale. Look how yeah. much you weigh. Yeah. yeah. Look how much Step you weigh. one is acknowledging you have the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, for, because for most things, it probably isn't a surprise to you. Like, usually the feedback you're getting, like, rings pretty true. Yeah. I think a lot of it, too, is just about saying it. Like, there might, there might be things, like, about Tim that will be bothering me. And then as soon as I just say them to him, I realize, like, that solved 90% of the problem. I actually don't even really care if he improves on them at all. I just, like, wanted to, like, get them out. Kind of tying into the not festering thing. Stop fucking yeah. shit up, Tim. So, um, I think if you... If you <laughs> work on one step at a time. <laughs> I think that just with that regular feedback, like, it also just builds the idea of that kind of self-improvement into the rhythm of the company. You don't need to be have some kind of plan to like deal with what's going on. You just need to need to be thinking about it. I feel like this would be really useful with children because I think this is the problem, right? Uh, 80s kid here. I'm like way older than you guys. Mm-hmm. I'm 10 years older than you guys. Uh, this way of thinking is, I guess it's been around for a long time, but its popularity is definitely mm-hmm. on the rise. And it's hard to miss the benefits. I mean, it's, yeah. it's obvious yeah. that many of the benefits are and like how did you adopt did you just, like, is this like jumping in the, you know the water is cold you just jump in or did you wade in how do you adopt such a radical philosophy on, on basically peer review workplace yeah. peer review like, did you just do it as part of the plan did you ease into it uh, you know I mean I personally like take a very empirical view on life um, and you like you, the foundation of empiricism is data and the only way you're going to get data about yourself is from other people because you don't really have an objective view of your own self. That's for sure. Yeah, you, I mean, you can't even hear your own voice correctly, <laughs> let alone the like deepest parts of yourself. You need other people to do that. Um, and so if you accept that premise, which I think most people would agree on, then the next logical step is you need other people to say the things to you and like everyone likes when people talk about them right i mean maybe not like to insult them but like people enjoy being talked about and so that you can sort of try to rope that process into waiting in a little bit primates we do yeah we do and i think we just kind of dove in but one of the things we also were aware of from the beginning you know for the first um you know eight months or so of castle it was just the three founders no employees and so we were really aware of um creating a lot of good patterns for the company from day one so that when employees started, it felt very natural, right? So I think having a really intense feedback uh, structure might be a little intimidating or difficult for employees if they come in and like, oh man, my boss is giving me really direct feedback. But when they've seen the founders of the company all do it to each other, and it's just sort of this thing that already exists that's part of the company that they're joining in on, I think it happens a lot more naturally. Um, So kind of by us just deep diving in, I think we were able to ease all the new people who joined the team into it. That's true. If you can yeah. do it, the bosses can do it, we can do it. Okay, that's an interesting idea. Has there been any negative fallout from this policy? I don't mean, like, sometimes you just have to fire a motherfucker. <laughs> they're just not working out. Yeah. They're, not getting on, uh, they're not getting on board. Um, I don't think so, really. I mean, I think... Yeah. I think there have been lightly hurt feelings, but we all know, I think, that uh, like lightly hurt feelings now are better than huge hurt feelings six months down the road because we 
didn't surface something that was important. And we all have a, a pretty strong like base of friendship at this point to, mm-hmm. to kind of keep things uh, well, yeah, solid underneath. Butthurt doesn't get doesn't pay the bills either. So <laughs> right. I try and focus on that. Um, okay, well, you led in right into my 2015 quest. I'm tracking practically everything right now. Yep, so, same way, um, Fitbit. Yeah, this is... This is the first year I've really like the number of calls I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm tracking some pretty mundane stuff, and I'm actually the more I think about it, the more things I want to track. What are you guys personally tracking, and in your business, and/or both? What are you tracking? What are the numbers you think are important? What are, What are the goals you guys are trying to hit? How are you? I mean, I know you're being peer reviewed by your employees mm-hmm. and by the founders, but what's important to you? What are your daily goals? What when you step in your business or personal life and step on the scale? What are the things you're tracking and measuring? Yeah, well, and Tim's, what's the software you're using to do that? Too? Tim's, Tim's comment about empiricism is something we've really taken to heart at Castle as well. Um, I think largely driven by Tim and Scott, who are both engineers by training. Tim electrical, Scott uh, computers. Um, you know, so for example, one of the key metrics we track is the number of contact points we have with our users, meaning tenants and owners, every day. Because one of our big theories about why traditional property management is so inefficient is that property managers spend a lot of time on the phone answering emails that they're basically responding to questions from their customers that if they just gave them more data up front, they wouldn't even have to ask. Like responding to some owner calling in to check in on how everything's going, where if they were just giving the owner that data to begin with, they wouldn't have to be spending 10 minutes on the phone answering that question. So we track the number of touch points we have with the customer every day. And the goal is that as we develop more and more information that's available in the software, the number of those touch points should be going down, right? Um, and when we use that data to tie into our efficiency metric, meaning how many uh, how many units can one property manager oversee? I won't share exactly what our number is because no, we have yeah, to keep that all secret. Yeah. But the standard in the industry is thirty units. One manager can oversee thirty units, uh, and we are higher than that and aim to to get get far higher than that. I think, and I hate to go on a side note, but. Man, the more I think about that, I think that really is the future, right? You're right. How many phone calls or emails do you get just because it's someone like me who doesn't feel the need to update? Right. Or doesn't know how to allow, um, doesn't have a way to allow access to that information that they want. Right. They actually don't want to talk to you. They don't even give a shit about you. Really. Right. They're like, hey, I like Max. He's all right. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Right. Why isn't this rented yet? They can just go in and see. So you're tracking that, and basically your goal is to get that number. Is it kind of, it's like a trust level or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's, it's, we want to be available for our customers when they want to talk to us. But in most cases, they're not reaching out with that question because they want to hear the answer from someone in person. They're reaching out just because they want to know, and they're annoyed that they have to call you or email you too. Like yeah. They just want to see it uh, right, right available there. And so I think it um, – and that's part of just, I think, how we build trust and confidence in, in our owners kind of over time as well. Yep. Then the other, that's like one big metric. Then the other one, the way we do, like I said, company-wide goals, we use a system called OKRs, which stands for Objectives and Key Results, um, popularized by John Doerr of IBM and then um, Kleiner Perkins, which is a huge VC firm in Silicon Valley. Uh, probably most well-known as the planning system that Google uses, maybe now Alphabet. 
I guess. Oh, I don't yes. know if you heard about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, uh, wait, wait, wait. What is it again? What is it again? Uh, objectives and key results. Objectives and key results. Yes. Where, where were they finding? Is this a book or? Uh, there is a talk by someone from Google Ventures that does a very good job explaining what the purpose is and how it works in practice. Okay. I will. Will you send that to me when we're done? Yeah. It's it? yeah. It's not I'll like put a it in show notes. Yeah. This is something I don't want you to spend too much time going over it. Yeah. This this sounds very interesting, and I want, to, I want whoever's listening, and then I'm going to go home. And, <laughs> yeah, so there is. Uh, it's a yeah. great system. It's similar to KPIs, that which I think is a little older. Sometimes people talk about that. Um, anyway, so it's got two parts. It's right in the name. Objectives is like the word or like the phrase that describes what you want to do at company and individual levels, and key results are the specific metrics about how you show you've achieved that objective. So, for instance. Um, I think this quarter, the business team's goal is to grow sustainably. So that has some, uh, a metric about sales, like how many units do we want to have on board by the end of the quarter? Um, it's got a metric about, I think contractors using the, using mm-hmm. the app. Cause that's sort of part of getting everything in the app and not going through people. Um, and so we set goals. It's like, all right, we want to have five contractors in the app by the end of the quarter. And we want to have, it's like 160 units under management by the end of the quarter. So you're tracking that metric all quarter. At the end of the quarter, you figure out like what your grade is based on what goal you set. And you're supposed to set them ambitiously. So if you get like a 70% on that metric, then you set it about right where you... It was supposed to be ambitious. You didn't quite get there, but um, you were shooting for that high number. If you get to like 90 or 100%, that means you weren't ambitious enough. If you get to like 50% or even lower, that means you failed. Um, and so um, and the, it sort of has a tree structure to it where the company has an objective and key results. Then um, each like core team of the business will have it. So like for us, it's a development team has their own OKRs, then the business team. And then below that, there, if there are other like sub teams, they'll have their own OKRs and then individuals um, will have their own OKRs. So Max and I each have our own, Scott and the other developer. It's fucking brilliant. Uh, yeah. So, and so then in theory, and it should be in practice as well, it's like even like the lowest level employee, their objective and key results should be able to feed all the way into the one at the top of the company. So everyone knows like where the company is headed. That's yeah. Not, is this software? Do you put it in your own software or uh, you just type it up? Or? No, it's, you know, even in that talk, they advise like, keep it really simple. You don't need a fancy program to track it all. So we just have a spreadsheet where each tab is a different quarter and they'll say like company objective key result and then the grades you can make a formula to compute it then it'll be like business team objective key results how do we do and we have them we have them written on in our corporate space we have one wall that's painted with whiteboard paint we have them just written on there very old school that's but just you see them yeah. you just see them every day every keep day. them in the top of your head whiteboard paint is ungodly expensive it just is fun fact to our viewers it's but stupid expensive by the <laughs> way you're like how could it possibly cost that it'd be much? easier to just Use white paint and just repaint the wall every time you need to erase them. <laughs> doesn't seem to work very long either. So okay, yeah. do, do you guys apply this to your personal life too, or? Uh, 
I, I use Trello for my personal life. I don't have any objectives. I don't do any of this crap for my personal <laughs> life. I get enough, get enough of it at work. Fuck so. my personal life. Fuck yeah. my personal life with this thing. <laughs> yeah, what personal life? Yeah, That's the much, question. Pretty much. For a startup, what does your day look like? Uh, well, now that we have employees, it's a little different. But <laughs> it used to be that the three of us, the three co-founders, ran on pretty different schedules. Max is an early riser by nature. I think 7 a.m. Yeah. on the regular. I prefer to wake up, like, my philosophy is nothing good happens before noon, so my shades aren't good enough to let me sleep until noon, and like I said, we have new employees, but um, definitely more of a night owl. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And then Scott is like a, he's like the last, like, third of the clock, where he'll be, (laughs) like, if he, he'll, he... In his ideal world, I think would be programming until like four or five a.m. and then sleep through a lot of the day. Um, so but he has a fiance who has a normal yeah. job, so we can't do that. <laughs> Ruining his life. Um, but it was actually something that you know in the early days. Now again, now that we have employees, there's more structure. We all start at a specific time. But in the early days, it was actually really motivating because because we all had these different schedules. Any time you were in this house, someone was working on Castle. So, like, I would work, you know, from 7 to, like, 8 p.m. I'd be done with the day. I'd go meet someone for dinner. I'd come back at 10 p.m. And then Tim is sitting on the couch working. So, like, it's very motivating to always have that around you. Um, so, it was kind of like we were each doing a shift of, like, covering a 24-hour working cycle. Innercastle.com. <laughs> and remember... Castle never sleeps. <laughs> I want credit for that, but uh, when you're 10 million units, you're like, Castle never sleeps. Uh, There's always somebody working at Castle. Yep. Be 10,000 people. My so. phone is never off. Do you break up your day into... So, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just curious. I, I like to try... And if not, I know, I'm just asking questions. I actually... Not on ironically. You guys actually probably know more about property management than I will ever know. <laughs> the reality of the situation, um, despite 10 years in real estate, how do you, or do you consciously break your day up into certain pieces or, or not? Or what, what does it look like? Mm. Is, well, we've got the stand-up meeting. I think yeah. It's good. We start with a 10-minute stand-up among each team every morning. We're just basically us on the business team. Just we each go around and say what we're working on that day. Basically, the idea is if you need anything from anyone else, that's kind of a good time to, to get it out there. Um, I do break up my day. I think I do it a little. So Tim's role is like operations. So he's really overseeing like all the nitty gritty of actual management. And my role is more on sales and marketing. Obviously, we all do a little bit of everything, but those are the big focuses. So Tim has less of an ability to do this than, than I do, but I will try to not look at my email until like noon because Otherwise, what ends up happening is you know, there's always email, and I'll end up spending the whole day just responding to things that are coming in, which is sort of like the equivalent of treading water, but I'll never actually like work on the bigger initiatives that actually like push the company forward. So I kind of use the trick of not opening email till a bit later in the day. Not always possible, and like sometimes you get a call, and like we have to be available. I mean, that's part of the nature of, of uh, you know being responsible for people's properties. Um, but it's kind of a trick I, I try to use. There is a virtue of working either very early in the morning or very late at night. It's like past like 8 p.m., basically no one is emailing me, even although people are trying to email me all during the day. So if I like want to work on the one-off programming project or like, uh, I don't know, brush up on my landlording notes or work on one of the bigger initiatives, that's a great time. So I know that people are either um, early birds or night owls. You might as well play to those strengths and get your carve out your own time. Yeah. Day. The other thing I try to do is separate like work that takes a lot of brain power and work that doesn't because like, 
we all work very long hours, but you still only have a set number of like really good hours, you yeah. know? So like I, after like 7 PM, I'm, that's it in terms of like anything that requires like amazing brain power, but I'll often work another hour or two, but just do things like, I don't know if you have to fill out forms for something or like making graphics for an ad where like you're kind of on autopilot, you know, trying to make sure I'm like aligning the difficulty of the task with my like level of functionality at that time of day. If that makes sense. No, that does make sense. Yeah. I know. I only get sometimes only three, like, well, yeah. Well, and peak. some days are different than others. They are, but I, I can generally average three, right. three peak hours. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I can usually scoop out a couple hours. Right. And then it's kind of like, yeah. It's I mean, down from there. every now and then there's a day where at the end of the day I'm like, man, I had five good minutes today. Like I had that one email where I was on and then it just was all, all downhill from there. <laughs> that was that was my week last week. <laughs> fucking soup sandwich. Like from start to finish. Like I don't even know how I made it through this week. Man, soup sandwich. That's a, that's I've a, never heard that. That's a great that's phrase. Yeah. That's definitely very food. Very evocative. I like it's, that. It's a soup sandwich. That was one of my weekends last week where right? I essentially struggled and think. Thankfully, breathing is an automatic mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I was suffocated to death. That's how that's how my week went last week. So, what what are what do you what do you guys what do you guys want to talk about? I have a few more questions, but oh, I, I hate to leave quite so much because I've got one, actually two books that I would like to talk about. All right, that's, that's something you Thank were going to say. Yeah, so perfect. one is pretty related to what we've been discussing. Um, kind of foundational to our team and how we approach things. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, I believe. Yeah, he's a behavioral behavioral economist. One more time. Thinking Fast Fast and Slow. slow. Yes. So I'll put this in the show notes. Who's it by again? Daniel Kahneman. Okay. This will be in the show notes too. Great. So he, um, the basic premise of the book is that like human brains are pretty good, but like they have very like a couple distinct modes. There's like a fast thinking mode that relies on like heuristics and kind of instincts. And then there's a slow thinking mode where you can employ sort of rational responses um, and where a lot of like the hard problems get solved. And there, I think he starts the book with a couple examples to illustrate. Like if I tell you I have a bat and a ball and the bat costs a dollar more than the ball, like what is the total? Yes, it's a problem like that. And like the gut instinct is to say, a dollar and ten, 10 cents, but then they add up wrong. I'm butchering yeah. the problem, but <laughs> that, he hits in uh, there. I know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Or what's the other oh, What's the other great example? Well, was, he, he's got a lot yeah. of like basically cognitive traps that humans are naturally predisposed to fall into because they're relying on the fast thinking part when they should be relying on the slow thinking part. And so Sounds like my life. There's very practical oh. advice in there about how to recognize when you're about to fall into the trap, stop your fast thinking part and employ your slow thing here i can give a great example of of one of these like mental tricks basically that i just remember from the book so like let's say i'm going to tell you that i'm going to describe a person and i'm going to ask you to guess which of two jobs they have okay perfect for this so yeah you know where i'm on so uh they've got a beard they like overalls uh they own a tractor they love fresh uh, fruits and vegetables and they live in a rural area and they're in the united states do you think it's more likely that they're a farmer or that they work in a fast food restaurant. They're far, far Right. So that's what everyone says when you're thinking fast. But the key piece of information that you'd realize once you think about it more is that a teeny tiny percentage of people in the United States are farmers and a huge percentage like work less in fast than food. 1%. So yeah. it doesn't matter what the personal description is. The answer is always oh. it's more likely that they work in fast food. Right? I got that wrong too. That's one what of the examples he uses. Human 
Hashtag human error. <laughs> right? Hashtag human error. And so... Cognitive... What do you call it again? Cognitive, cognitive traps. Cognitive traps. Yeah. So there are many other books that tackle similar subject matter, but this one, is, again, is very highly practical. So it tells you, like, these are the situations. This is how you stop. This is what you should actually be thinking. And this is very relevant for anybody in any business, or especially a startup, or... or I can personally go back and like a laundry list of all the terrible decisions I made that are obviously terrible once you realize yeah. how poorly you were thinking yeah. that if you can catch it beforehand, will save you years of grief. So so that, that one is more like foundational, can apply to anyone. And then to the other side of the spectrum, um, there's this book called Landlording. Um, it's, I think the title is just Landlording. I don't even know who the author is, but it's like the book about landlording. When we bought this house... In the early stages, um, I was like, we need to figure out how to be landlords. Um, so I got this book on recommendation from many forums. No one else recommended the book. I read the whole thing, took notes on it. And when I was, after I got done reading it, I was like, what if like, not everyone had to read this 500-page book to be a good landlord? And Castle is like the answer to that. So like imagine turning that book into software and a service that could be like applied to anyone you could just pay the monthly fee. So if you're really determined to be like a do-it-yourself landlord, like save yourself and your tenants a lot of pain by reading this book. Um, and if you are interested in property management and you want to know like what our approach is, a lot of it's contained in that book. Perfect. And before you have this book here, physically here? Yeah, I can... Do you want me to go yeah, go grab it. I'm keep talking to Max. This it's means huge. I don't have to edit it later or do anything like that. I it's, suck at video editing. Giant. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's good too because like it's hard to recommend because it's just called landlording, so like it's impossible to search for. That's but a great once you name, see though. it, it has a very unique yeah, title. That, that's so. a great name. Well, I, I mean, it's as a side note, when my wife and I drive around, I always love like when you drive past. You always talk about how in real estate they have such unimaginative names. Yeah. When it, in the service industry, I love when it's not um, imaginative names. I love when it's like, for instance, dry cleaning. Oh yeah, for like, sure. It's fucking perfect. Like dry cleaning, I got a dry clean. Right. Oh, well, and that it makes sense because you're just driving by and you it's might. It's the same see, thing. Right. Landlording. Landlord. Okay. So. Oh, by Lee Robinson, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah. hold, hold that up to the camera. I will read it for the people in the podcast too, and I will put it in the show notes. <laughs> We got landlording, eleventh edition, eleventh edition, handyman for scrupulous landlords and landladies. I love English. <laughs> Who do it themselves? Written by Lay Robinson, L E I G H. Robinson. And the amount of property management companies we've encountered who don't follow anywhere even close to all the best practices recommended yeah. in that book, and not debatable best practices. It's these are empirical best yeah. practices. I mean, we could do we could do a whole other podcast just about the crazy stuff we've seen from other property managers. I was gonna, companies. I was gonna say before before we're done, I, I want to invite myself back over. <laughs> so, we can do round two. Yeah, yeah. This book was first published in 1975, and the most this edition came out in 2010. So like it's pretty up to date. It the basis like the author is kind of a curmudgeon, so you might be especially. <laughs> I would love yeah. He makes lots of side comments about like regulations, this and like yeah. uh, you know. I think he's also based. Isn't he based in California? I think he's in the Bay Area. Yeah, so obviously, crazy laws out there. Yeah, he mentions a lot of 
kind of strange rules and regulations. And there's like comics in here too that are clearly in the style of the 1970s. Example forms. Um, yeah, it's it's entertaining enough for some of the really dry material to, to keep you all the way through it. And if you're going to be a landlord, you sure how many pages? Uh, this is... looks fucking thick. Let's see. Well, including some of the, like the... Uh, forms that go in the back. It's five hundred, yeah. over five hundred, and they're like big. Like it's not the size of a book. It's like yeah. big. It's like, like an encyclopedia. It's yeah. basically the size of if you ever it's buy a ream of like printer paper. It's yes. that size. So, so this was the book. Yes, basically all the like sort of tips and tricks about like I had no idea about landlording. I kind of a blank slate, and then read this and was like. A lot of the problems that seem really thorny, it's like, what if your tenants aren't paying rent? Like, how do security deposits work? Or things that, like, you run into people doing wrong when you're a tenant. It's like, there are correct answers, and they're not that complicated, and they're in this book. But people who, especially since there's so many, like, accidental landlords where they inherit a house or, like, the one next to them comes up for purchase or, like, their friend does it and they want to get into it. I'm sure you've met a lot of these people. Oh, yeah. Tons. It's like, they are, they're like, oh, it's easy. Like, they... Tent just gives me money every month, and like if no. I like them, I'll let them rent from me. No, yeah, it's like it's so so wrong. Yeah, it's so wrong. That's not how it works. Interesting. Why am I not surprised? This is a good. I want to go back to what you said, though. Um, it kind of struck me, and, and a lot of this is it is not sinking home with you. Remember, I'm older than you guys. <laughs> um, where you say took this book and put it into the software. Yeah. I keep coming back to that. Um, books to software. It, <laughs> it's hard. It, I don't know. What do you guys think? I'm just going to throw this out there, right? So here we are, primates, walking around, eating, breathing, shitting, trying to figure out something. Man, you really summed it up right there. Yeah. <laughs> Come out. You know how many times you pooped as a baby because somebody documented it, but not most people do. And then at some point, there's an end. And hopefully it's not in between, right? Yeah. That, that's what we all want. Yeah. It's easy to just fall into a pattern and become a part of life instead of living a life. But I think a lot of success and a lot of, I don't know, maybe, maybe just me, maybe I'm letting more of myself out than I care to know, is, <laughs> is taking the, the bad software, mm. the software that isn't giving you the results you want, or, or maybe, maybe you don't even have software. You're just... Ah, I saw somebody else do this or I'm going to try it. You can actually go get a book like Landlording or an app or something like that. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to take books and make them in the software too yeah. and improve humans. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's like the, you know, step one is just like learning the best practices. Um, like Tim was saying, you know, step two is, when we have landlords, tenants, uh, contractors on our app, you know, we can actually make a lot of those best practices kind of happen automatically, right? So, you know, uh, reminders to pay rent, making sure people document the interior um, of the house when they move in the right way. Um, even something as simple as a lot of tenants don't know, you have to notify your previous landlord in writing of your new address when you move out. Otherwise, legally, they can keep your security deposit even if you think you didn't damage the house. It's one of those crazy laws. But one of, yeah, one of those... Really, really. Better than know it's all right. Right, but oh, yeah. so you know, that's something that there's no reason you can't you know click I moved out in the app. It tells you exactly how to return your keys. Tells you um, the process for getting your deposit back. Just makes everything easier for everyone. That's amazing. That's 
I don't know. I can't keep coming back. This has been on my mind for a long time. Mm. I'm trying to weed out the human error in my life. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I've lost everything twice. And one of the things before I started up a third time, what I became obsessed about is like, dear God, let's not do it again. <laughs> right. Just so it's it's on my mind. It's something I've been I've been thinking about a lot. What was um, how did you find out about that book? Just get on Google or so when. When we were first thinking about the house, um, I, well, throughout the summer, we were looking online to see which properties were going to auction, but um, we were also trying to do like the basic numbers about um, what is, what is and isn't feasible. And so I think maybe on Reddit or something, the, people kept referring to this one really long thread on this poker forum called two plus two. And it's, it was it's not about poker, this thread, obviously. It's about, like, real estate investing. This one guy gets in their off-topic section, starts a post. It's like, hey, I've been doing real estate investing for a long time. So I've heard a lot of people are interested in here, like, ask me anything you want about doing real estate um, deals and stuff. And so it's this, it was, like, 300 pages of forum thread, and I read the whole thing um, and took wow. notes on everything he wrote, looking in particular for... Um, people's stories that matched our situation like there were story people I were asking about like trailer park trailer park places a lot or like quick flips that didn't really apply to us but anyway when people did get on the topic of like managing rentals once they were getting this cash flow property to rent out like he would recommend this and then other people would come in and, and like independently recommend this book Wow. So very lucky to have found that threads that led to this book. I think I've sussed out a pattern too. And for the listeners and you guys, uh, forgive me if I'm beating it to death. So because I'm doing this as much for myself as for everybody else. So before you even knew you were going to buy a house, before you even knew you were going to do a startup, you knew you wanted to be entrepreneurial somehow. You looked around you saw your options. You aligned yourself with Venture for America, mm-hmm. even though you didn't know what you wanted to do. You looked for mentors. You looked for information, and you kind of refined from there. And every time you had an idea, you tried to reach out to someone who's done it before, some sort of authority. Hey, you've done 15 of these houses. Can you come look at our houses make sure we're not going to screw up our first one? So, so I'm noticing a pattern here, which is why I keep asking is if you want to do this too you're listening at home watching it home on youtube whatever um i don't think success is an accident i think success are habits um whether it ends well today or tomorrow you don't get this far by by accident so okay that, that's very interesting to me what about you max what are you, what are you thinking about what do you want oh man we've really run the gamut here i think yeah from uh personal life to origins of castles to uh to book recommendations um I don't know. I don't, don't, I don't think I got anything else. Okay. Well, I... But I suspect you do. I have a few more. And then that's it. Where... And the time frame I'm just talking about. Yeah. I'm interested in your perspective. Where do you think Detroit is going? And when I ask that, I'm not, I, what I'm talking about... I'm talking about several things. Where do you think it's going economically... Politically, and something that I at least want to touch upon as it comes up all the time, even for this interview, and I won't mention names. Um, 
something I've noticed changed since I've been in Detroit. When I moved to Detroit in 2007, I felt welcomed. Mm-hmm. And I can't say the same thing from about 2013 on. Hmm. Um, I feel like a xenophobia. Hmm. Why, why are you hiring people from the outside and bringing them in? Or, or why are we encouraging people from out there and are, are coming in? Or why aren't you hiring somebody from inside? Or why aren't you doing it from inside? I, I don't know. I feel... I kind of feel like maybe this is America, too, with, with um, immigration, illegal immigration. But anyway, I digress. Where do you think Detroit is going economically, politically, financially, whatever? What, what, what do you think? You're making a bet, essentially, yeah. too. You could have picked any city. You could have done property management in any city. You wanted to do it here because it was tough, but also I'm sure you had other reasons, and you're making predictions on those. What, what are those predictions? Yeah. I think, I mean, my standard answer for this is that I think Detroit's really on the upswing, but it also has a really long way to go, right? So it's like, you have to hold the balance of like, amazing things are happening here, but the hole is so deep that it's going to take many years of amazing things to get out of the hole. I think the thing that makes me the most optimistic about Detroit, well, there's two things. I think one is, I really have experienced a sense of, it just, for, I think, recently in the past couple of years feels like... Um, many different things in Detroit are kind of working in relative harmony to move the city forward. So you have kind of old school community groups who've been here forever. You have sort of the big business community downtown. You have the city government actually operating pretty well these days and actually the state government being pretty cooperative too. You have people, you know, who've been in the suburbs moving back. You have people from other cities like us moving here. It seems kind of like all the wheels are in motion and and things are headed in the right direction. Um, and I think with the region too, I actually think that's something that's often underlooked is like, you know, it seems like the region is finally realizing that they need Detroit to be successful for them to be successful. You know, looking at everything from finally, it seems like building those commuter rails to Ann Arbor and Pontiac, improving the regional transit. Like, I think that's the impact of the region overall is kind of often ignored when people talk about what's happening with Detroit. Um, and I think Detroit just has, there's interesting stuff here that, gives Detroit potential to be a really great city, right? Everything from just like the buildings look amazing to um, all the history that happened here to the fact that Detroit just seems to have this culture where it's attracted interesting people, right? I mean, you know, there are other cities in the Midwest that have kind of fallen on hard times and then sort of begun to be revitalized, but none of them are getting any of the attention that Detroit is getting, even though a lot of them are in objectively better shape. And I think there's a reason for that, that there's just something about the Detroit vibe that draws people. And that's actually like a really important asset for the city. So we're all big boosters of Detroit. I mean, I don't think any, when we all moved here, you know, three years ago, I don't think any of us thought we would stay this long. We just found ourselves kind of drawn in. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. In it to win it? In it for the long haul? I mean, what's the long haul? It's hard to make, you know, it's hard for me. I mean, I think Detroit is a decade or more away from a full really come back. And I mean, who, how can I imagine what I'll be doing when I'm 35, you know? So I don't know if I'll still be here, but I know that I'll, you know, I came to Detroit basically as a complete stranger to the city and definitely will have ties to it for the rest of my life, whether they're practical, like owning this house here or whether they're just emotional. Yep. And I mean, for us, it depends so much on where the business goes. Um, like Detroit is our first market, but it won't be our only market. No. And, um, Grow. it could, yeah. It, so it could take us in all sorts of different directions. I mean, definitely we'll have an office here probably for as long as the company is around, which ideally is forever. Um, but 
yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, we got here in 2012, even since then, like things have been changing and the rate of change has been going up. And then you as being part of like sort of first wave of, um, like the more larger wave of immigrants to the city, I'm sure you've seen yeah. a similar sort of thing with like a redoubling of the rate of change. I ignore the whining. I think it's people whine. It's like exercise, right? I don't want to get in shape. Yes. <laughs> you got to get in shape. Stop <laughs> your fucking crying. Tim, Max, this is awesome. For everybody listening, for those watching, watching, go to innercastle.com. Get on the Twitterverse at innercastle. Give them a follow. Um, also, if you find this podcast and this YouTube video helpful, you know, share it. It's a free podcast. Get up there. Share it all over the interwebs. Share it with everybody. If you have any ideas, um, questions, something you think I could do better, all that, uh, you don't have to make it anonymous. I will call you out. No, I'm just kidding. I appreciate hearing it. Um, go to renegadedetroit.com. Yes, I realize the website's old. It's being worked on. At some point when you listen to this, it will be updated. Go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors to see what our meeting is. Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Follow me at Jeremy Burgess on Twitter.com and give a shout out to these guys. Go to, uh, go to innercastle.com and at innercastle and just say hi, ask them what they're doing, check them out. And um, I really appreciate it. Share this all over the world. And um, thanks for tuning in. Don't be a stranger. Catch you guys on the next one.